It's really a delight to uh, be with you today. Thank you so much, Todd and Ray, for inviting me to participate in this uh, wonderful celebration. We really appreciate Matt Usi opening up the church for this uh, wonderful meeting. I can't think of anything I'd rather speak on than this subject of the coming of the gospel to Hawaii 200 years ago and the impact of the gospel in Hawaii. You know, the coming of the missionaries was really on the cusp of the 200 years of modern missions. And today the gospel is spreading around the world in unprecedented ways. In 1984 was the, was the turning point, according to David Hesselgrave. Before that, most Bible-believing Christians lived in the West, in America and uh, Europe. Since 1984, the majority of Bible-believing Christians in the world live in the majority world, and the gospel is exploding around the world. So even though sometimes we get discouraged at what we see going on in America, God is at work in powerful, unprecedented ways, uh, bringing people to himself out of darkness into his light. And so I'm delighted to talk about this subject today and to think about how God in his providence brought circumstances together both in Hawaii and in America in his, in his time to bring the gospel to Hawaii. Let's bow in prayer for just a moment again. Lord, bless us as we go through this wonderful subject. May you open our hearts and eyes. Uh, may we rejoice in what you have done and what you can do by grace for your glory in our lives and our ministries. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, the next slide. Uh, I wrote this down as I was thinking about this subject and reflecting on it. The story of the coming of the gospel to Hawaii and the amazing spiritual, social, cultural transformation that resulted is a powerful and encouraging illustration of the truth that God rules over the nations, that he sovereignly directs the affairs of men and nations for his glory. And as we think about where we are in history and what's coming up in another month here in Hawaii, in, in America, with the election of the president, how encouraging it is to know that God is sovereign. God is in control of history. Next slide. A verse, uh, some verses of scripture that I think about when I think about Hawaii and the coming of the gospel here is 1 Thessalonians 1. We always thank God for all of you. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. As you see in your seats there, I'm, we're giving you a paper uh, to take with you and to reflect on after this slide presentation. Uh, next slide. The outline of the paper is uh, the first part, first four points, the providential hand of God in the coming of the gospel to Hawaii, the first missionaries and how they were received, lives transformed by the gospel, and then Hawaii's Great Awakening, 1837 to 1840. Next slide. And then uh, the theme of this uh, paper, the good, 
seven ways the missionaries were used by God to transform Hawaii in one generation. And then the bad, anti-missionary slander, and the ugly, four myths, four missionary myths that persist to this day. And finally, some concluding thoughts and a powerful quote by, of all people, Mark Twain. And uh, this is in your paper in a more extensive way than is going to be in this slide presentation, but there are some things in this presentation that I don't mention in um, the paper, particularly the trials, the challenges, and the opposition that Titus Cohn uh, received during the Great Awakening in Hawaii, uh, the opposition that he received. And we know that in your lives, in my life, there's a price to pay for preaching the gospel, for serving Jesus Christ. All true ministry to the glory of God has always been marked by suffering, as Warren Wiersbe said. And so I know some of you well enough, well enough to know how much you've suffered for the cause of Christ. And none of us are exempt from that. We're going to see that in the life of Titus Cohn in the midst of one of the greatest awakenings in the Western Hemisphere. Uh, next slide. Do you recognize that picture? That, that, that portrait hangs in one of the little rooms on the side of the main sanctuary at Kauaihau Church. That is a portrait of Henry Opukahaia, the first Hawaiian Christian. Uh, next slide. Henry Opukahaia was born in 1792 on the Big Island near uh, Kealakekua Bay. How many know his story, by the way, are pretty familiar with his story? Some of you, most of you, it looks like more than half of you aren't. Um, but he died in 1818 in Cornwall, Connecticut. His passionate plea and his prayer to God was that God would send missionaries to Hawaii. Turn to the next slide. Henry Opuka'ia changed the course of Hawaii's history forever. That's why I often think of him as perhaps the greatest Hawaiian who ever lived because of the impact of his life and death on the people of Hawaii and how the gospel came to Hawaii because of his great burden, his passionate plea for missionaries to take the gospel to the islands and bring salvation and freedom to his people. Next slide. I came to Hawaii on Henry Opukahaia Sunday, February 17th, uh, 1977, many Hawaiian churches, our church, celebrates Henry Opukahaia Sunday every third Sunday in February. I think it's something that every uh, young person, every child, every old person ought to know and rejoice in, in Hawaii. Well, I came to Hawaii on Henry Opukahaia Sunday, and the next morning I was in jail spent the next uh, 14 years in and out of jail and prison uh, because I was the state prison chaplain for 14 years. And uh, the first two years of my ministry in, I uh, hope you can see that pretty well, I think you can, that's the old cell block, main cell block of Hawaii State Prison. Uh, the first two years of my ministry there were real pickaxe work. It was very discouraging, and after two years I I said, Lord, do you really want me to be here? Is this the place that you've really called me to serve you? And then in tremendous ways, he began to show me, yes, this is the place that I've called you to serve me. And some of the key inmate leaders 
over the next year or so became believers, some of the most dangerous, violent uh, men that were feared by the other inmates became believers. And I invited them to be my chaplain's assistants and had the joy of beginning to disciple them and see them blossom into mighty servants of Jesus Christ. Uh, we started a Monday night Bible class because my great burden was to help establish these new believers in the foundations of their faith. And I thought, Lord, how can I, how can I do that? How can I reach these men for Christ and then establish them? And so I decided to pick the book of Genesis. And uh, James Boyce has written a three-volume commentary, as you probably know, on the book of Genesis. And he says in that commentary, in the introduction, there's no more needful time for anyone to be studying Genesis than right now. It's probably one of the most relevant books we could be teaching as pastors to our people. Why is that? Because it lays the foundation for the Christian life. It starts with who God is, his glorious creation, man made in the image of God with glory and dignity and great value and yet fallen and in desperate need of a savior. And so I realized as I was teaching Genesis over the next year and a half that I was laying a solid foundation in the lives of these men that led eventually to a tremendous movement of the Spirit of God in the prison as they came to have a biblical worldview and caught a vision for what God had in mind for them and how they reached the rest of the inmate population for Christ. Eventually, we, we had to move to the gymnasium because there were two men on too many men on Sunday morning to fit our little chapel. We would have about 250 men in chapel on Sunday mornings. Can you imagine brothers singing, these new Christians singing, there's power in the blood of the Lamb, singing so loudly, 250 men, that they're making the rafters of that old gym shake, or what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, or amazing grace. I, I refuse to teach them the 7-Eleven songs. You know what a 7-Eleven song is, don't you? It's got seven words and you sing it 11 times. We didn't learn 7-Eleven songs. I tried to teach them the great hymns of the Christian faith. And there are many great hymns being written today, but the main thing is to give them food to grow on and to biblical, give them biblical food and, and theological truth in the songs that they sang. And so. We taught these men many of these great hymns. You notice the cross in the front yard right by the main cell block? One uh, Easter, we decided to have an Easter sunrise service out in the front yard. And uh, the men built that cross, the brothers built that cross, painted it, and put it there in the front yard. And not long after that uh, Easter service, we baptized 40 men there at the foot of the cross. And it stayed there, right there in, at the main cell block for several years. Eventually, the prison became extremely overcrowded, but it was a very peaceful place because of the, the gospel that had penetrated the prison, symbolized by the cross right there by the, front, by the front gate. Then the ACLU showed up, and they came to Hawaii to sue the state for uh, the conditions in the prison, the overcrowded conditions, and one of the things they were really concerned about was uh, the fact that the food was too cold by the time it got to the cell blocks from the kitchen 
and that was a serious problem to them. Little did they realize inmates were killing one another, beating each other, until the gospel came and saved some of those key leaders that were doing the killing and the beating in the prison. And uh, so the warden, who was a believer at that time, Ed Shimoda, said, brothers, would you mind taking down your cross because the ACLU is harassing me about that cross. So they said, sure, uh, um, warden, we will take it down. So they dug it out and took it down and put it back behind the gymnasium. And the ACLU did their thing in the uh, prison. And after they left, the brothers pulled it out again, dug a deeper hole and put it in cement and stayed there again for, for another few years as a testimony to the powerful grace of God. Next slide. I'd love to tell the brothers the story of Henry Opukahaia. I told it over and over and over again to encourage them with how proud and thankful they ought to be for a man like Henry O, whose passionate desire was that they hear the gospel. And so I would say, that's why I'm here, because of Henry's prayer for the people of Hawaii. I wish we had time to tell that story this morning, but we don't. And it, but it's in the paper, so you can read uh, in the introduction of the paper, you can read a little bit about it later. Uh, next slide. As a result of Henry's prayer and his plea, uh, the first missionary company left Boston on October 23rd, 1819. Henry had died tragically, from our point of view, tragically of typhus fever at 26 in, uh, on February 17th, 1818. And the missionaries, the people of America said, if Henry can't go, then God wants us to go. And so they formed the first missionary company. Next slide. Uh, so let's think about some of the providential events preparing the people of Hawaii uh, for the gospel. Next slide. To me, this is very strategic in terms of the timing of the coming of the gospel. In 1810, that's 10 years before the missionaries showed up, after 28 years of bloodshed and terror, King Kamehameha united the islands under his rule. So then, for the first time, all of Hawaii came under one kingdom. Instead of the warring factions throughout Hawaii that would have made it very difficult for the missionaries, now there's one kingdom and one king ruling the entire island chain. Next slide. One of the key battles in his uh, consolidation of his rule took place in May 1795. Uh, uh, this is one of the key battles, the Battle of Nu'uanu. Uh, every day, almost, I see that Pali and that place where um, Kamehameha drove the forces of Nu'uanu up through the Nu'uanu Valley, and, they, and he forced them to jump to their deaths there at that, at that spot, uh, the Pali lookout. About two generations later, a bunch of hikers were clambering around at the base of that uh, mountain, and they came across uh, hundreds of skeletons of warriors that had died uh, during that battle. But to their amazement, none of them had heads. There were, no, there were no skulls. It was all just skeletons. And the reason was because King Kamehameha went down there and cut off all their heads and impaled them and hung them in his temple. So these were pretty savage times. 
but providential. Next uh, slide. May 1819, King Kamehameha died, and Kaahumanu, his favorite wife, became the queen regent. Uh, Liho Liho, his son, was too much of a playboy, and he was more interested in fornicating with the girls and fooling around than to be interested in ruling a kingdom. And so, in God's uh, providence, Kaahumanu became essentially the ruler of Hawaii. Next slide. Shortly after Kamehameha's death, the kapu system that had oppressed the people for centuries was abolished. Kaahumanu and Liholiho led in ordering that the temples be destroyed and all the idols burned, and the little tiki gods were given away to foreigners as souvenirs because they entirely rejected their idol system. They realized that uh, their idols weren't answering their prayers, they were dying. By the time the missionaries arrived between Captain Cook and the missionaries, 71% of the Hawaiian population had died. There were less than 100,000 people left by the time the missionaries came because of all the diseases brought in by the foreigners and the gods, their idols, weren't answering their prayers. And uh, besides that, the foreigners would break all the kapus and nothing happened to them, so they decided to reject the entire thing. Next slide. Under the kapu system, the Kanakas had no rights. The chiefs and kings exploited them, oppressed them. They lived under the constant threat of death, often for trivial offenses. I wish I had time to tell you some of those ridiculous offenses that would lead to instant death for a commoner. They were forced also to die as sacrifices to purchase favors from the gods. This was not paradise on earth. Next slide. So for six months, as the missionaries sailed across the Pacific, the Hawaiian people were a people without a religion. Six months. Next slide. Heva Heva, the chief kahuna to King Kamea, prophesied that someone would come soon and tell them about the true God that they could worship. And then amazingly, he went down to the beach in Kona and waited. He sat there and waited. And lo and behold, in a short time, next slide, the missionaries arrived, April 4th, 1820. And they said, we've come to tell you about the true and living God who created heaven and earth, who loves you, who doesn't demand a sacrifice from you, but gave you the sacrifice of his son that you might be saved and become a child of God. Next slide. Heva Heva said, I, I knew the wooden images of deities carved by our own hands could not supply our wants, but worship them because it was a custom of our fathers my thoughts have always been there's only one great God dwelling in the heavens. Next slide. Queen Ka'ahumanu, as I said, was uh, out of uh, King Kamehameha's 17 wives. She was his favorite, and she became queen regent after his death. Next slide. She's considered, uh, she was considered the most beautiful woman in Hawaii. Have you been down to the uh, Mission House Museum? There's a, a special room that was a guest room that she would often come to to stay overnight with the missionaries. And the last time I was there, one of her mumus was spread over her bed and it looked like a bed sheet because she was the most beautiful woman in Hawaii and she weighed 500 pounds eventually. 
Big was beautiful in those days, but she was one of the first uh, Hawaiians to become a Christian. And her commitment to Jesus Christ changed her character, brought justice to her rule. Before she became a Christian, she despised the poor. After she became a Christian, the common people became her companions and co-workers in spreading the gospel. Uh, one of the great books that I've enjoyed so much over the years is a book entitled 14 Years in the Sandwich Islands by Charles Devrini. He wrote this in the middle of the 19th century. It was in French, but recently translated into English. And uh, he was the finance minister of Hawaii and eventually served more or less like the prime minister of Hawaii. And um, he has one whole chapter in which he talks about um, Queen Kahumanu. Uh, next slide. He says, this is just part of the quote, she pushed away her lovers as one might push away lackeys. She compiled severe laws against immorality, gambling, drunkenness, belief in the native gods. Sexual immorality would be punished by death. Enormous penalties levied against those who touch brandy or rum. The people learned, I think this is very significant, the people learned that Ka'ahumanu herself had now accepted the Christian faith and that therefore they too, the people, must likewise become Christians. I'm a Christian, now guess what? You're gonna become a Christian too. Now, it's not by might nor by power, says, this, says, my, says the Lord, right? When I was in the prison ministry, it was like that too. When these uh, very violent, dangerous men became believers, they were so on fire for the Lord that if Leawafi Mautautia came up to you and said, I want you to become a Christian, you'd say, yes, sir, where do I sign up? And uh, Tanavasa one day, another beautiful, godly believer, had become a Christian in an amazing way. And I remember him coming up to me one day and put his big fist in my face. And he said, look at that, Chaplain Rick. I said, um, what? He said, well, well, look at that. I said, what do you mean, look at He said, well, this proves that, that I'm really saved. I said, what do you mean? My knuckles aren't bleeding anymore. In other words, he was so used to punching people out, threatening and intimidating them, that he knew he was saved because his knuckles were healing over. And so Ka'ahumanu said, I'm saved. I've been born again. Now I want you all to be Christians. And that's what made the foreigners so angry, wasn't it? Because they said, hey, we came here to party, to fornicate, get drunk, and she spoiled the party. And so they, from the very beginning, they despised the missionaries because they were ruining the lifestyle that they thought they had. The next uh, slide. Kahu Manu made it her mission to visit every island and every village of each island, spreading the good news of Jesus and promoting education. And here she is teaching God's word to the people of Waimea, that's Kamuela, in uh, 1826. Next slide. I took this uh, picture, you may not be able to read it, but in memory of Elizabeth Kahumanu, this, this plaque is on, in the foyer of Kauaihau Church. As you walk through those big doors and look to the left, it's there, and to me it shows what a glorious Christian Kahumanu was. I'll just read a portion of it. It says, um, she wisely ruled the Hawaiian people as queen regent until her death in 1832. 
Although naturally proud and haughty, she early in her regency humbly accepted Jesus as her Savior, was baptized at Kauai Hau in June 1825, and labored earnestly to lead her people to Christ. She was spoken of by the American mission as a distinguished reformer of her nation, a kind friend and benefactress of the missionaries, and a faithful comforter of the infant churches in these isles. As she was falling asleep in Jesus at the age of about 59 in the beautiful valley of Manoa, just before the dawn of June 5, 1832, fully trusting her Savior, she repeated the following lines of a valued Hawaiian hymn, Lo, here I am, O Jesus, grant me thy gracious smile. And I'm thrilled as I read that because it shows me what a great Christian she was and genuinely born of the Spirit. She used to love when she'd come and visit the missionaries to grab the missionary girls, pick them up and put them on her lap and chat with them uh, as she talked to them. Uh, I was talking to the, a um, couple of years ago, to the uh, librarian over at the Mission House Museum, and he told me some really interesting and humorous stories. He said before he came to be the right librarian at the uh, Mission House, uh, after he graduated from the University of Hawaii, he had a very negative view of the missionaries. But as he came there as a librarian, began to read the original documents, uh, his estimation of the missionaries went through the roof. And uh, he'd have people come in and ask him questions. One person said, I'm writing a paper, and people come from all over the world to study there at the uh, Mission House Museum. He said, I'm writing a paper on how the missionaries patronized the Hawaiian people. Can you give me some information about that? And he said, well, I can't tell you anything about how the missionaries patronized the uh, Hawaiian people, but I can tell you that the Hawaiians uh, called the missionaries their pets. In other words, it sounds more like the Hawaiians were patronizing the missionaries. So Queen Ka'umanu called the missionary girls her pets and we pick them up and put them on our lap and talk with them. So, next slide. Another great Christian, one of the early Christians, was Kapiolani. And her, the story of how she um, defied Pele, the volcano goddess, is a powerful story. Pele was one of the most feared gods in all Hawaii. And it's hard to see that, I guess, on that screen. Uh, this is one of the many great paintings of uh, Herb Kane. He's my favorite Hawaiian artist. And people feared Pele, even though they were f professing Christians. And so Kapiolani decided that she needed to do something about that. She needed to um, defy Pele. And so, next slide. She, she and her about 80 friends walked 100 miles to the rim of uh, Halimaumau Crater. Uh, and as they were on their way, people said, they warned her, don't go any further, you're going to die, Pele will kill you. Next slide. But she said, I will not die by your God. The fire was kindled by my God. I fear not Pele. If I perish by the anger of Pele, then you may fear the power of Pele and worship her. But if Jehovah saves me from the wrath of Pele when I break her all her taboos, then you must fear and serve the Lord and turn away from Pele. All the gods of Hawaii are worthless. 
The Lord is the only true God, and in his goodness he sent missionaries to turn us from these vanities to the living God and the way of righteousness. Next slide. And so she marched right up to the edge of the crater. There were ohello berries growing all around. Only the priests were allowed to eat them because they were the food for Pele. So she gathered up all the ohello she could, oh, 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 berries she could find and popped them in her mouth and munched away and threw rocks into the volcano. And uh, then she read scripture and led that group in singing hymns. And it was a turning point in Hawaii's history. It broke the back of Pele worship. And uh, many people came to saving faith in Christ and began to live more godly lives. Next uh, slide. Then think of some of the providential events that God used to prepare his people in America to bring the gospel to Hawaii. First of all, next slide. The passionate plea and dying prayer of Henry Opukahaia, as I said. The missionaries came to Hawaii, first of all, because of the earnest prayer and passionate plea of Henry Opukahaia for his people to hear the gospel. So it wasn't the missionaries' idea initially to come to Hawaii. It was a, it, they came in answer to the plea of a Hawaiian Christian. The second slide. The Second Great Awakening from 1790 to 1840 has been called the, the, the greatest, so, had the greatest social impact of any event in the history of America. You should look up on the internet some of the articles on the, the Second Great Awakening. It's, it took place literally just three years after uh, our Constitution was ratified. And to me, it was a great and marvelous way that God began to powerfully work in, a, in the lives of people in America. Because when, before the Great Awakening, you realize that only about 5% of the people of America had any affiliation with any church. And uh, women were afraid to go out at night. Uh, there were bank robberies uh, every day. It was very violent, very corrupt. And uh, if we think it's bad in America now, read about what conditions were like in America just before the Great Awakening. And then God about, brought about this tremendous transformation that, that, be, that, that began at the very foundation of our nation. During this time, God began to powerfully stir the hearts of his people to be concerned about world evangelization they had never been before. They hadn't thought about world evangelization. They thought about evangelizing the missionaries, but they didn't think about the people of the world. Next slide. William Carey is called the father of modern missions. Remember that uh, when he felt led of the Lord to go to India, do you remember what the hyper-Calvinist uh, friends of his said? If God wants to save those people in foreign lands, he'll save them. He doesn't need you to be involved. If they're God's elect, they'll get saved. You don't need to go. And William Carey said, yes, I do need to go. God called us to go and uh, preach the gospel. And God will save his elect. So he wrote, this, uh, he wrote this pamphlet. It's only 87 pages. It's so powerful and so encouraging. You should get it off the internet. Get it in a PDF form and read it. 
and inquiry into the obligations of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathen, that little paper is called the Magna Carta of Modern Missions. This, this led to the, the last 200 years of missions around the world. Next slide. One of his favorite, famous quotes is, attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. Next slide. Another significant event seemed so tiny at the time was the Haystack Prayer Meeting in 1806. These were five young college students who had read William Carey's challenge. And they gathered under a haystack during a rainstorm to pray that the Lord would raise up men to take the gospel to the nations of the world. That little prayer meeting that seemed so insignificant led to the founding of the first American Foreign Mission Board. It was called the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, founded in 1810, the ABCFM. Next slide. And uh, it was founded in 1810. In 1813, they sent the first American foreign missionary to any foreign country, Adoniram and Ann Judson, and they went to Burma, as you know. So when we go to Burma a couple of times a year, we always uh, mention to our Myanmar friends there what a close connection Hawaii has with Burma because uh, six years later, the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions sent Hiram and Sybil Bingham and Asa and Lucy Thurston to Hawaii. In the first 50 years, the ABCFM sent 1,250 missionaries to nations around the world. Next slide. Here's the first missionary company. Two ministers. The ministers were always the leaders. They were called the missionaries. The others were missionary helpers. But there was one farmer with his wife and five kids one medical doctor and his wife, two teachers and their wives, and then four Hawaiian young men who were all students of the foreign mission school in Cornwall, Connecticut, that was uh, founded because of the inspiration of Henry Opukahaia for the gospel to go to the people of Hawaii. They were all trained there. One of them was uh, the son of the king of, of uh, Kauai at that time. Notice that they had a holistic view of missions from the very beginning. It wasn't just the preachers that came, but also a farmer, medical doctors, teachers, as well as translators. Next slide. The leaders of the first missionary company were Hiram Bingham and Asa Thurston. Somebody asked me, tell us uh, what kind of people these were. What, were the, what kind of people were the missionaries? Next slide. Well, they were some of the uh, best trained ministers in America at that time. Hiram Bingham was an 1816 graduate of the first evangelical seminary in America, Andover Theological Seminary. Andover was founded by evangelicals who left Harvard Divinity School after they appointed a Unitarian theologian as the head of the school. So 200 years ago, Harvard went liberal. <laughs> That's nothing new. Uh, Asa Thurston graduated from Yale in 1816 and Andover in 1819. Yale was led by Timothy Dwight, uh, the grandson of Jonathan Edwards, and under his leadership, Yale experienced an amazing revival. There were hardly any believers on the campus of Yale. There were no Christians 
on the campus of Harvard and two on the campus of Princeton before the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening. And then under um, Timothy Dwight's leadership, um, I think it was at least a third of the student body uh, soon became believers. Many of them became pastors and missionaries. And here's one example, Asa Thurston. Adoniram Judson was also a graduate of this first evangelical seminary. Uh, next slide. Hawaii's Great Awakening, 1837 to 1840. Here, a spiritual revival swept across the islands and transformed Hawaii in one generation. Next slide. This uh, spiritual awakening between 1837 and 1840 is considered one of the greatest movements of the Spirit of God in the Western Hemisphere. By 1840, Haile Church in Hilo became the largest Protestant church in the world. In 1840, King Kamehameha III officially declared Hawaii to be a Christian nation in 20 years. Next slide. For the first uh, 17 years between 1820 and 1837, what was happening during that 15, 17-year period? I don't have the book here, but Kirkendall, who wrote a three-volume uh, history of Hawaii, describes that as a time of laying a foundation. Less than 1,200 people were admitted to the membership in the churches in Hawaii in the first 17 years. But during the three years between June 1837 to June 1840, nearly 20,000 people were saved and admitted into membership in the churches. And Titus Cohn was one of the main instruments God used in this uh, spiritual awakening. So if there's one book that I would encourage you pastors to read if you haven't, it would be this book, Titus Cohn, Life in Hawaii. It's a wonderful book that tells you about the tremendous movement of the Spirit of God in the Hawaii Second Great Awakening, the trials that he endured, and the tremendous results of his ministry. Um, he was called by Kirkendall, he described him as a preacher of great power, like one of the old, I'm sorry, turn to the next slide, a preacher of great power like one of the old Hebrew prophets. He had a 50-year ministry, almost, in Hawaii. One interesting story is that in 1838, after three years of fruitful ministry, he had about 5,000 people that had made professions of faith in Christ. And, uh, but he wasn't satisfied. He didn't do like some people have done here in Hawaii. Just say yes to Jesus, line up here and get baptized. That didn't happen. He, he had these people making professions of faith, and he was concerned about the, the genuineness of their salvation. So he began to examine them. He began to disciple them, get them into small groups, and talk to them about the foundations of the Christian faith. And he, whittled, he shook that list down finally to 3,000 believers that he believed were uh, ready for baptism. So on a, a Sunday in July, 1838, 3,000 people were about to be baptized, but at the last minute, he chickened out. He decided that 3,000 people being baptized on one Sunday was a little bit too much. So he only baptized 1,705 believers on one Sunday. Uh, how in the world do you dunk 1,705 believers? That would get, wouldn't your arm get a little tired? Well, he was a good Presbyterian, Matt, so he sprinkled them. He had a bucket 
and he uh, had a broom, and he'd get them into small groups. I now baptize you, and, and he baptized 1,705 believers on one Sunday. Next slide. I love this quote because it, tell, it gives you something of the heart of this pastor and evangelist. When I came to these islands, I often felt as if I should burst with strong desire to speak the word to the natives around me. And when my mouth was open to speak of the love of God in Christ, I felt that the very cords of my heart were wrapped around my hearers and that some inward power was helping me to draw them in as the fisherman feels when drawing in his net filled with fishes. Does your heart resonate with that? If you're a pastor, you love the people God has given you like that, you have a passion to see them come to know Christ, a desire to see them grow in grace, be established in God's word. So that's the kind of man, evangelist and pastor that Titus Cohn was. When I think about this, I think of a wonderful passage of scripture, Paul's words in Colossians 1. Let's turn to that slide. Next slide. Christ in you, the hope of glory, we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. To this end I labor, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. I love that last phrase, to this end I labor. The ministry is labor, isn't it? It's struggling. But notice what he says, struggling with all his energy. It's not our strength, is it? Uh, when I am weak, I am strong, Paul said. It powerfully works in me. And you see the, the uh, God powerfully working in Titus Cone to use him as one of the key instruments in this wonderful movement of the Spirit of God. Next slide. Opposition to the work. Warren Wiersbe said, true ministry to the glory of God has always been marked by suffering. And as I said, I know some of your brothers very well, and I know that's true in your life, and it's certainly true in my life. You pay a price for serving Christ, and yet there's great joy in serving him. Uh, how was uh, Titus Cohn opposed in his ministry? Turn to the next slide. The Catholic missionaries. The Catholic missionaries arrived in 1827. One of their primary goals in coming was to overthrow the Protestant missionaries and uh, also to bring Hawaii under uh, the authority of the Catholic Church. They arrived in 1827. Ka'ahumanu and the chiefs expelled them, kicked them out in 1831. Why would these priests be kicked out of Hawaii by the queen and by the chiefs because she stated that their religion appeared too much like the idol worship that the Lord had just delivered them from. They had all their images and idols and they thought, wait a minute, this is going to be so confusing to our people. They've just been set free from idolatry and you're bringing all your little images and idols and that's going to be so confusing. Get out of here. They didn't want to leave. And so they had to be forcibly removed. But in 1839, the Catholic missionaries came back on a French warship. And the French commander, with all his cannons, threatened King Kamehameha with war. He said, I'm going to go to war with you 
if you don't let my priest get back into Hawaii again. So he was in, so intimidated that he issued the Declaration of Toleration uh, for the Catholic missionaries. But the Catholics didn't think they were being tolerated too well. So in 1841, they came back with a second warship with 52 guns, I think. And they, this time they did attack Honolulu and they did $100,000 worth of damage. They destroyed the fort, destroyed all the ammunition and the guns. And then of all things on top of that, they, they required reparations for the supposed mistreatment of the Catholic priests. And one of the reparations was they demanded that from then on, the, the, the nation allow French wine and brandy to come into Hawaii. They, they realized how the, the government, the missionaries realized how terrible the temptation was to drunkenness in Hawaii and so it was outlawed. So you can imagine how the missionaries felt when one of the reparations uh, with, the, with the Catholic priest come in was that they could have brandy and wine from France. And um, forget what I was going to say about this. Oh, one thing I was going to mention, maybe I'll mention it now, is that the Catholics tried the same trick in Tahiti, but there it worked. And I think there was a reason for that, and there was a reason why it didn't work in Hawaii and why the Catholics did not overpower the church and the missionaries in Hawaii. I remember watching a pastor, a local pastor here in Hawaii, have a Catholic official come up on a stage, embraced him and began weeping and confessing the sins of the Protestants who had persecuted the Catholics when they first came here. And I thought, you know, that fellow needs to go back and study his history and so does that priest. It should be the priest blubbering and weeping and confessing the sins of the Catholic Church for the way they opposed uh, the, the gospel and the um, early Christians in Hawaii. Turn to the next slide. These, uh, these quotes come from Life in Hawaii, chapter seven from Titus Cohn. The apostolic prefect of the San Juan Islands, quote unquote, landed without permission, refused to depart, under the delusion that the Pope as the vice regent of heaven had dominion over all earthly principalities and powers as if the earth were his footstool. Then followed a long struggle in which arrogance, intrigue, duplicity were freely exercised and which conflict has continued to this day. Next slide. Everywhere they perplexed and vexed the simple natives by telling our best and most tried Christians that they were outside the true church and on their way to hell. They taught the people that the Protestants were all heretics and deceivers, that their ordinations were invalid, their pretended marriages were adultery, and their teaching was delusive. They gained weak followers. Liars, thieves, drunkards, and adulterers were flattered that all would come out well with them if only they were in the true church. Next slide. But I think the significant thing that made the difference between what happened in Tahiti and what happened in Hawaii is that Titus Cohn had done such a remarkable job of grounding God's people in the word. They had such a good foundation that they were then able to resist uh, false teaching and opposition. I think that's so vital. One of the great 
heartaches in America is that so many Christians don't have a good foundation. They don't even understand their faith. They've never been established. That's why, as I said, if you want to teach God's Word, the best place to go is back to the beginning and teach your people Genesis. Teach them about the nature of God and creation and man's dignity and value made in the image of God and the fallen man's fall and then God's provision of a Savior. I love teaching through the Genesis, Genesis for about a year and a half because every week I, on Monday nights I could preach the gospel to the inmates. And then we went on to teach the rest of the Pentateuch, which is so relevant as it points to the person and work of Christ. Anyway, uh, believers were grounded in God's Word, and here's an example. A good old native was accosted by a priest. Are you one of Mr. Cone's disciples? I'm one of the disciples of Christ. What's the true church? Barnabas replied, the true church of God is composed of all true believers who love and obey the Lord Jesus of every age and name and nation on earth and in heaven. Could you have said that better? Uh, was he grounded in God's word? I think so. This truth began to ruffle the priest. As he left, the priest murmured, that poor, deluded, and stubborn heretic. Uh, next slide. Receiving the title of Lord Bishop of Honolulu, Bishop Staley contemplated supplanting the American missionaries, converting the natives to his faith, and establishing one grand Episcopal diocese over all the islands. It was found that there was one factor in the plot the shrewd bishop had overlooked, the will of the people. Why should they forsake their own father's friends, to whom under God they owed all they knew of civilization and of the Christian truth? And so they resisted these attempts to forcibly overturn, overthrow the Protestant missionaries and establish Catholicism in Hawaii. Next uh, slide. After the conflicts with the Catholics, guess, guess what was next? The Mormon missionaries showed up in Hawaii. Not many years after the introduction of the papal priests came a drove of Mormon emissaries. They spread themselves in squads all over like the frogs of Egypt. They made an early descent upon Hilo saying, if you will unite with us and come into this new light, your people will soon be born again and then receive the Holy Ghost and all the signs of speaking in tongues, healing, and all miracles will follow. Wait a minute. You mean the Pentecostals don't have a corner on healing and speaking in tongues and uh, miracles? No. The Mormons believe that too. And they promised that that's what would happen if people would just repent and become Mormons. Next slide. For years, numbers of this deluded sect traveled over these districts using all their powers of persuasion, not, to, not accepting lying and deceit to draw people after them. Though numbers of low characters at first turned after the Mormons, the sect soon ran out here, and now they have neither church or school or meeting house in all Hilo and Puna. Um, why do I, I decided to share that. It's not in the paper, but I decided to share that uh, from his book, why did I do that? Simply because in the ministry, don't be surprised when you experience opposition, when you experience misunderstanding and misrepresentation and attacks on your ministry. It, it comes with the territory. It's part of the price you pay for serving the Lord Jesus. 
In his case, the opposition came in the form of early Catholic missionaries and early Mormon missionaries. I don't know what form the opposition might be in your case, but persevere, uh, hang in there, keep up the good work. And if you are faithful to God's word and keep faithful to establishing people in God's truth, he will bless you and, 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 and honor your ministry. Let's look at the next uh, slide. Seven ways the missionaries were used by God to transform Hawaii in one generation in just 20 years, 1820 to 1840. Uh, next slide. First of all, a written language. The missionaries gave the people a written language and taught them to read and write. By the time of the Civil War, the Hawaiian people were one of the most literate nations on the earth with almost 100% literacy. That's really amazing. The missionaries came, they wanted to teach God's word, and the only way you can teach God's word is people need to be able to read it. And so they taught them to read and write in their own language. They gave them a written language. Next slide. Bible translation. The missionaries translated the entire Bible from the original languages of Hebrew and Greek. And uh, when I was up at the Mission House Museum, the, the librarian pulled out some of the files there and showed me they still have preserved there in files all the original work from Hebrew and Greek of the, of the missionaries on each book of the Bible. And you can go up and examine them and look at, look at them. And uh, he was really in, impressed with that. That was quite a monumental task. So one of the thing that, things that the first missionaries did before the Great Awakening was they gave the people the Bible. The New Testament was completed in 1832. By 1839, the entire Bible had been printed in the Hawaiian language. Next slide. If you go to the Mission House Museum, you can see a copy of the original edition, one of the original edition of the uh, Hawaiian Bible. It's fascinating to see it, and they will show it to you. It's under glass, but they'll take it out and let you thumb through it and look at it um, if you request it there at the Mission House Museum. Next slide. Then a comprehensive educational system. By 1823, just three years after the missionaries came, there were 400 native Hawaiian teachers and 25,000 students. By 1831, there were 1,100 schools teaching 40% of the population. And by 1840, there was a law that stated that every community had to maintain a school. That's another thing this librarian was profoundly impressed with. When he looked at the quality of the education that the missionaries had given the, the uh, Hawaiian people, he was just amazed and impressed. Next slide. Medical care. Uh, Evelyn Cook says it can be argued from the historical evidence that had not the missionaries done all in their power to protect the Hawaiians from further foreign exploitation, and had they not worked so tirelessly to provide vaccinations and other forms of medical care, it's possible that no Hawaiians at all might have survived, as is the case with a number of extinct North American native tribes that were exterminated by smallpox and other Western diseases. Remember that the miracle of modern medicine hadn't taken place yet. There were no antibiotics. And when Captain Cook discovered Hawaii in, in, in 1778, 
There were, it's estimated by the Encyclopedia Britannica there are about 300,000 native Hawaiians. But according to the Pew Research Center, by, by uh, 1820, when the missionaries arrived, the population had declined by 71% to less than 100,000 people. Why? Because of all these diseases brought in by the foreigners during that 40-year period, they were decimated and uh, demoralized. That's one of the main reasons they rejected their gods, because their gods weren't doing anything about that. No antibiotics, so we're worried about the coronavirus. A California ship sailed into Hawaii one day, and after it left, 10,000 people died of measles. The only vaccination they had in those days was for smallpox. Next slide. James Smith had a big supply of smallpox vaccinations, and he saved Kauai and Niihau from the smallpox epidemic of 1853 that took thousands of lives across the island chain, but he traveled, this is amazing, he traveled on horseback to every village on Kauai and vaccinated every single person. What a monumental task. And as a result, only one person on Kauai in that year died of smallpox, while thousands were dying across the island chain. And there were many other medical doctors. Dr. Dwight Baldwin was another missionary on Maui, a medical doctor that had uh, a tremendous ministry too. Next slide. Then pastoral training. The stated goal of the ABCFM was native Hawaiian pastors over native Hawaiian churches. They had no intention, like some of us, of monopolizing the ministry. Their goal was to multiply ministries. And their stated goal was, we want native pastors of native churches. The missionaries trained Hawaiian teachers, evangelists, pastors, and missionaries to bring the gospel to their own people. One of the books I brought with me here that was uh, really a joy to me to read, it was just published last year, it's called Nakahu, Portraits of Native Hawaiian Pastors at Home and Abroad. Uh, the missionaries trained around 200, uh, th this book describes the stories of around 200 native Hawaiian pastors, evangelists, teachers, missionaries that God raised up to reach their people for Christ. I think it's a, it's a great uh, effort and it was just published last year. A number of young Hawaiian men were sent to the mainland to be trained at the Foreign Mission School, but Lauren Andrews uh, organized the, the Lahaina Luna Seminary. It was very famous. In 1831, they trained about 150 native Hawaiian pastors, teachers, and evangelists. Titus Cohn also had a pastor school. Next slide. Here's the, I guess I jumped the gun here. Here's this uh, book. It traces the lives and ministries of 280 Hawaiian teachers, preachers, pastors, and missionaries. Next slide. Another thing was Native Hawaiian missionaries. Native Hawaiian missionaries were the first to evangelize the Marshall Islands. Did you know that? Until the Native Hawaiian missionaries went to the Marshall Islands, they hadn't heard the gospel. And Christianity became firmly established in the Marshalls and ties to the Marshalls in Hawaii endure to this day. Just talked to Jason Saito about that. When he was on Maui, 
at Kahului Union Church, they hosted a large gathering of Marshallese pastors and teachers and evangelists for a meeting because the Marshallese people realized they owe the hearing of the gospel to native Hawaiian missionaries who brought the gospel to them. Native Hawaiian missionaries also went to the Gilbert Islands and the Marquesas Islands. James Kekela served as a missionary to the Marquesas Islands for 49 years. Next slide. Here's uh, the Hawaiian mission to Micronesia when, when they first went. King Kamehameha wrote this letter of introduction. They're about to sail to your island some teachers of the Most High God to make known unto you his word for your eternal salvation. I commend these good teachers to you and exhort you to listen to their instructions. I advise you to throw away your idols, take the Lord Jehovah for your God, worship and love him and he will bless and save you. Next slide. Uh, not too long ago, I was walking around Kauai Hau Church and I saw a memorial that I'd never seen before. It must be pretty new. It's right near the back of the church by the cemetery there along the sidewalk, and it's a memorial to James Kekela. He was a pioneer missionary, as I said, to Micronesia and the Marquesas Islands for 49 years. The Marquesans were um, uh, cannibals at that time. And there's a, a, an interesting and, and humorous story. It's in, it's in this uh, book about his ministry there because one day a, a, an American naval vessel sailed into the Marquesas Islands and uh, they got off to, for leave, and one of the sailors somehow inadvertently broke one of their taboos, one of their kaboos, and so they were gonna kill him and cook him and eat him. And uh, Pastor Kakela had so much respect from them that he convinced them not to cook this guy and eat him. He saved his life and got him back on the ship and they immediately sailed away. But because of that, Abraham Lincoln um, expressed his appreciation, gave him a gold watch and other uh, rewards, and his story was spread in the newspapers across the United States. This native Hawaiian missionary that saved the life of a, an American sailor kept him from getting cooked and eaten by the natives on the Marquesas Islands. Next slide. Uh, Hawaiian vision for world missions. Here's what Kekela wrote, I love this. I'm a native of these islands. My parents were idolaters, and I was born in times of darkness, but a great light has arisen over us. The Word of God has been the source of our choicest blessings. What then is more reasonable than that we Hawaiians should extend to other nations in this ocean the blessings of the gospel? These tribes are now what we were a short time ago, degraded, wretched idolaters. Shall we not have pity on them? as the people of God in the United States have had pity on us. The next slide. This, this to me is really profound. The, way, the, the, the impact of the gospel in transforming not only individuals' lives, but society and all of culture, and that's what happened. Notice this final point. Human rights and the rule of law under the Kapu system the Kanakas had no rights. The chiefs and kings oppressed them, exploited them. They lived under the constant threat of death, often for trifling offenses. There was a little boy that his parents told him to go and serve uh, one of the chiefs, and uh, he did. But the problem was he dropped 
the chief's um, spittoon. And that's a no-no. Nothing that the chief owns should ever touch the ground. He dropped it. Instantly, he was taken out and killed because that was a cop. And there were other ridiculously trifling offenses that Kanaka people were killed for in those days. They worked their little kulianas to gather provisions for the chiefs. Whatever they raised, they had to first of all feed the chiefs and provide provisions for the chiefs. If the chief wanted something, he could go out to one of these kulianas, look around, decide he wanted whatever it was, and whether it was a pig or some other animal, just take it and walk off with it. And if you wanted your wife or your daughter, he could walk off with them too. You had absolutely no rights. And then besides that, you were forced to give up your life on a sacrificial altar to, some, to gain some favor for the gods. Uh, but then, in contrast to that, the rule of law based on biblical law provided equal rights for Ali'i and Kanakas. Next slide. Declaration of Rights of 1839. This, this became the prologue to the Constitution. It's been called Hawaii's Magna Carta of Freedom. It stated, no chief may be able to oppress any subject, but that chiefs and people may enjoy the same protection under one and the same law. That is so revolutionary, unbelievably revolutionary for, for what they were and what they became because of the gospel. Next, the Constitution, written the next year. Next slide. The 1840 Constitution of the Kingdom of Hawaii gave equal rights to the common people, established the rule of law. It established a House of Representatives which gave the people a voice in the government. Unbelievable. Uh, next slide. Then the Penal Code of 1850. The Penal Code of the Hawaiian Islands outlawed abortion, infanticide, sodomy, other vices, but so had the Constitution, but there it was encoded. Abortion and infanticide, which you'll, you'll see if you, when you read my paper, how, how pervasive abortion and infanticide were in Hawaii. One of the reasons, as Samuel um, Kamakau says in, in this great book, he was one of the premier historians, as he points out here, one of the reasons for the decline of the population of Hawaii was abortion and infanticide. It was pervasive. Um, sodomy was commonly practiced among the chiefs. They not only had uh, many wives, they also had their ikane. These were teenage, young teenage boys that they used for sexual purposes. And uh, when, the, when, the, uh, Hawaiian, when the missionaries wrote up a Hawaiian dictionary, they included that word, ikane, and they, and, and, and they defined it as close, intimate friend. And so I read stories about how some later missionaries showed up and they didn't really understand the meaning of ikane. And so they would see that in the dictionary and they would try, at that, try that on some of the chiefs. Hey, buddy, I want to become your ikane. Chief would say, hey, you want to be what? Oh, all right. And um, it means your intimate homosexual companion. And so they had homosexual companions, uh, the chiefs did. It was commonly practiced by most of the chiefs until the coming of the gospel. And um, 
I think I have this later, but eventually the, uh, the gospel, the, the Hawaiian people outlawed homosexuality, infanticide, abortion. There were severe penalties for sodomy. Uh, if you were convicted of sodomy, it was a $1,000 fine and 20 years of hard labor uh, for sodomy. What a difference there is today. Hawaii became one of the first uh, uh, states to approve of abortion and same-sex marriage and so forth. Next slide. This is what Kamehameha said about the Constitution. When, you should read the Constitution, find a copy. It's like reading a sermon. It's so refreshing and encouraging. This is what he said. It's our design to seek the greatest prosperity both of all the chiefs and all the people of these Hawaiian islands. But we are aware that we cannot ourselves alone accomplish such an object. God must be our aid, for it is his province alone to give perfect protection and prosperity. Wherefore, we first present our supplication to him that he will guide us to right measures and sustain us in our work. Next slide. Alvin Schmidt has written a, a great book, How Christianity Changed the World. And here's a quote. The liberty and justice that are enjoyed by humans in Western societies and in some non-Western countries are increasingly seen as the products of a benevolent secular government that is the provider of all things. There seems to be no awareness that the liberties and rights that are currently operative in free societies of the West are to a great degree the result of Christianity's influence. Next slide. In spite of these tremendous blessings of the coming of the gospel, anti-missionary slander has been in existence the, since the missionaries first showed up. The missionaries have been targets of ridicule and contempt since they first arrived in the islands. I told you one reason. Uh, they didn't like what Ka'amahu Ka Ka uh, established, and so they hated the missionaries because they knew it was because of those blankety-blank missionaries that our, our fun has been spoiled here in these islands. Modern critics tend to view the missionaries as harsh, intolerant, narrow-minded bigots who exploited the Hawaiian people, stole their land, dismantled their culture, spoiled a paradise. And the general public's knowledge of the missionary period doesn't come from reliable historical data, but from popular sources like James Michener's novel, Hawaii. That's not history, that's fantasy. And, uh, but people get their idea of Hawaii and the missionaries from that film, from the book and then from the film. Next slide. James Michener pictured the missionaries as misguided meddlers who destroyed a Polynesian paradise and ended the happiness of the Hawaiian people. But modern critics of the missionaries often neglect to mention the role played by thousands of sailors, planters, merchants, ranchers, and other non-missionary foreigners who began arriving from every corner of the world 40 years before the missionaries ever set foot in Hawaii. Next slide. Here are four missionary myths that persist to this day. Number one, next slide the island paradise myth. The myth is the old Hawaii before the missionaries showed up was a mythical Eden, but it was poisoned by the missionaries. But here's the fact. 
Life in pre-Christian Hawaii, as we've already shared, was often violent and cruel. The Ali'i were free to oppress and exploit the common people with impunity. Commoners basically had no rights. They were maybe slightly above a slave. Samuel Kamakau, I, I referred to that book here, one of the greatest native Hawaiian historians gives examples of people killed for shark bait. It was dangerous to go out at night alone because if there was a, a chief that wanted to go fishing the next day, you might end up being the bait. And he mentions that commoners were killed for wearing a chief's loincloth or smoking his pipe. Next slide. Second myth, the cultural destroyer's myth. From Hawaii to Kauai, the chiefs and people received missionaries as friends, says Kamakau. No people could have treated them more kindly. No one begrudged their coming, grumbled, spoke unkindly of them, or raised any trouble, but all dwelt with them in peace. It was the other foreigners, local traders and settlers from foreign lands, who tried to stir up trouble for them. The chiefs were a refuge to the missionaries and defended them in trouble. The Hawaiian people received them as parents received their firstborn children. Next slide. When the missionaries arrived, they saw, this is uh, Evelyn Cook again in her great little book, 100 Years of Healing, which is the story of Dr. James Smith and his family. When the missionaries arrived, they saw that alcoholism and venereal disease were devastating the Hawaiian population. Thousands of sailors from all over the world thronged to the ports of Lahaina, Honolulu, Koloa, drinking, whoring, passing on venereal diseases to the natives. Grog shop owners and peddlers of female flesh despised the missionaries for threatening their livelihoods and were the first to give voice to the sort of anti-missionary slander which persists to this day. Next slide. The land grab myth. The myth is the missionaries and their descendants have been accused of stealing Hawaiian lands and enriching themselves at the expense of the Hawaiian people. But here's the fact. The land was controlled by the aristocratic Ali'i who did everything in their power to keep it out of the hands of commoners. The largest landowners in Hawaii were and still are in some cases descendants and heirs of those same Hawaiian Ali'i as well as non-missionary foreigners who purchased their vast lands from Ali'i, who willingly sold it for personal gain. Only a handful of missionaries acquired lands exceeding a few hundred acres, and though some of their descendants did grow enormously wealthy, H.B. Ristarik talks about this. Number four, <clears throat> next slide, the destruction of Hawaiian religion. This is one of the most persistent of missionary myths. It asserts that the missionaries destroyed the native religion in order to replace it with their own. In 1819, the Hawaiians themselves abolished the kapu system, along with the ancient Hawaiian religion. The Hawaiian rulers had lost faith in their own religion some time before the missionaries brought the gospel. The gospel actually became a stabilizing influence at a time when the islands seemed to have lost their moorings. Many Hawaiian people found the emphasis on love and forgiveness to be a refreshing contrast to the kapu system's reliance on bloody human sacrifice and fearful prohibitions, many of which carried the death penalty. And then the final slide, next to final slide, next one. Mark Twain visited Hawaii in 1866. He wrote a book called Roughing It in the Sandwich Islands. And um, 
he, there's a profound quote here, and I'm going to just take part of it. Re the rest of the quote is in the paper that you can read, but turn to the final slide. He said, when Kamehameha the Great invaded this island of Oahu and exterminated the army, those were savage times. The king and the chiefs ruled the common herd with a rod of iron. The missionaries have clothed them, educated them, broken up the tyrannous authority of their chiefs, given them freedom and the right to enjoy whatever their hands and brains produce with equal laws for all, and punishment for all alike who transgress them. The contrast is so strong. Remember now, Mark Twain was no friend of Christianity or even necessarily the missionaries, but he was a, an astute observer and an honest person, and he said, the contrast is so strong, the benefits conferred on this people by the missionaries is so prominent, so palpable, so unquestionable, that the frankest compliment I can pay them and the best is simply to point to the condition of the Sandwich Islanders of Captain Cook's time and their condition today. Their work speaks for itself. So I encourage you to read the paper I wrote, which has a lot more detail, and also it has a bibliography in the back. And I've put out a few, um, few of the books uh, that are from the uh, bibliography that uh, I would encourage you to consider reading. Here's one called Hawaii Pono, which is an, an ethnic and political history. It goes from missionary times to today. Uh, he doesn't do justice to the missionaries, but what you see here is a panoramic view of the history of Hawaii and the challenges, the radical changes that have taken place in Hawaii and the challenges that has meant for native Hawaiian people uh, as the, uh, it tells the sociological history of how all the various ethnic groups showed up here in Hawaii and the radical changes that brought to Hawaii. And uh, so this is helpful, he names names. <clears throat> this one, Captive History, Captive Paradise, A History of Hawaii was written in 2014, and it is uh, another very helpful book. He's an honest historian, and uh, I think he does a, a great job. It's a gripping narrative, as one person said. I think you'd enjoy that. And as I said, uh, the, um, this book, Life and Why, would be a great book for every pastor to read. Uh, you read Titus Cohn's ministry in that wonderful, providential time in Hawaii's history, Hawaii's Great Awakening. And as I said, the reason the Catholics weren't able to accomplish their goal to overthrow the Protestant missionaries in Hawaii, like they did in Tahiti, was, was because uh, of the, I think, because of the Second Great Awakening. That, gave, that grounded, that saved many people, brought more unity to the, to the islands, and gave the people a solid foundation in God's Word, what we desperately need today to resist uh, the false teaching that's all around us, particularly in Hawaii. We need to be grounded in God's truth. We need to sing great hymns, not 7-Eleven songs. <laughs> and uh, I know that uh, you do a good job of doing that too at uh, MCC. So let's bow in prayer. Lord, thank you for this opportunity. There's so much more that we could say, and there's a whole 200 years of history in Hawaii, and many, many other 
aspects of very complex history, 200 years of Hawaiian history. I pray that these pastors will take time to do more study and appreciate the sociological ethnic history of Hawaii, the context in which we minister, the power of the gospel to transform lives through these uh, missionaries who came. They weren't perfect. They had many foibles. But compared to the Kapu system, there's no way we could even compare and criticize them for some of the manini things that uh, we might easily criticize them for because of the freedom that the, the gospel brought to the people of Hawaii. So thank you for this opportunity. Thank you for, your, for the encouragement of knowing that you are sovereign in history. You sovereignly, providentially worked to bring about a, a tremendous transformation in Hawaii. We pray that you might do that again, Lord. You might bring a great revival to our nation, which we desperately need. We pray that pastors will be faithful and Christians will be faithful in living, living out the truth, not only knowing the truth, but may there be a great reformation in our lives and a revival of living the truth day by day. We pray all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay.